and welcome to Skeptically Curious. I'm your host, Ryan Rutherford. This is a podcast where I endeavor to know more and think better by talking to knowledgeable guests about fascinating topics. So please join me on this journey of exploration and edification. If I were to hazard a guess, the odds are far more likely someone listening to this has heard of climate change than they have of the Anthropocene. While its use has exploded since first being coined by Nobel Prize winning chemist Paul Crutzen in 2000, particularly in academic circles, the term remains far less well known than global warming and or climate change. As noted in the interview to follow, I might have to rethink my assumption somewhat after learning about some recent pop cultural references to the idea, including an album by Canadian musician Grimes, released in 2020, titled Miss Anthropocene, and the podcast The Anthropocene Reviewed, hosted by best-selling author and popular vlogger John Green for the last few years, which culminated in a book by the same name published in May 2021. In addition, Yuval Noah Harari, of Sapiens fame, mentions the Anthropocene in his 2015 tome, Homo Deus. The Anthropocene is therefore hardly such a well-kept secret anymore. However, I still maintain it probably ranks as the most profoundly important conceptual framework most people have never heard about. The Anthropocene essentially means the age of humans denoting that our species has become such a potent planetary force that it has radically, and in some cases irrevocably, altered the planet in a myriad of ways. This includes changes in land use, atmospheric composition, chemical cycles, most notably nitrogen and phosphorus, pollution, weather patterns, and, perhaps most tragically of all, biodiversity, as we are currently living through what has been dubbed the sixth great extinction. To better understand the Anthropocene, I decided to reach out to Dr. Will Steffen, one of the main researchers responsible for formulating the concept from its inception and who has collaborated with other major scholars in this new field, including Dr. Crutzen and Johan Rockström. Dr. Steffen is originally from America where he obtained a PhD in chemistry. After working as a chemist for some years, he developed an interest in surface flows and earth system science. Among many advisory roles and posts he has held, Dr. Stefan became involved with the International Geosphere-Biosphere Program, or the IGBP, a research team that began looking at the Earth in a broader context as an integrated system, eventually serving as its executive director from 1998 until 2004. According to Dr. Stefan, they took a, quote, systems-level approach to understand how the Earth has evolved, how it has changed in the past, and how humans are driving change in the future. After summarizing some of his background, I asked my guest to clarify the primary conceptual features pertaining to the Anthropocene. A key idea here is that the current epoch, or epoch, identified by geologists to denote the last 10 to 12,000 years, namely the Holocene, marked by relative climatic stability and which saw the rise of agriculture and all that is entailed by modern civilization, is no longer appropriate to describe the transformations affected across the globe by human activity over the last few hundred years. Considering that the Anthropocene idea emerges to a significant extent from Earth system science, I asked Dr. Stefan to explain more about this field. 
I then probed him for a so-called bumper sticker definition of the Anthropocene, after which I inquired about the main lines of evidence to support this classification. There is still some contention over when to date the start of the Anthropocene, which we discussed, and then we spoke about the Great Acceleration, the term for the massive expansion of economic activity across the globe after World War II. We then discussed planetary boundaries, which is another vitally important concept to understand the meaning and significance of the Anthropocene, and associated with work by the aforementioned Swedish researcher Johan Rockström. Some other topics we delved into include the notion of a golden spike, indicating a clear demarcation between different geological ages, alternatives to the Anthropocene designation, which some scholars have argued is too broad considering not all people are impacting the world equally, and, perhaps most provocatively, whether humans are an irredeemable species considering how much destruction we have wrought on all aspects of the biosphere. On a more positive note, I asked Dr. Stefan about possible ways to address the vast impact of human activity on the planet. While this is one of my shortest interviews, it is also one of the most substantive and wide-ranging, as befits a topic of such expansive scope. After all, the Anthropocene is the ultimate interdisciplinary subject and, as the name suggests, implicates us all. I hope those new to the topic will grasp the central notions outlined in the discussion and that everyone, regardless of their prior exposure, will leave with a deepened appreciation of the immense import this concept entails. Lastly, please remember to rate and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. Please also help to spread the word and, if you feel so moved, consider donating via Patreon. Skeptically Curious also has a dedicated Twitter account for those interested. Thank you again to all those who have listened so far, and I hope you keep it up. Now, without further ado, I give you Dr. Will Steffen. Welcome to Skeptically Curious, Dr. Will Steffen. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yes, I'm really very excited to talk to someone who's one of the major figures in a profoundly important topic, uh, the Anthropocene, which we'll be discussing hopefully at some length and in depth. But before we get there, if you'd maybe provide some background about what you studied, your professional life, intellectual journey. Yeah, um, I guess I started out uh, many, many years ago, probably quite a few decades ago, uh, as a chemist. But I quickly got involved in environmental physics and studying uh, some of the basic science surrounding, for example, uh, water vapor flow, energy flow between land surface, atmosphere, that sort of thing. So, so that got me going back in the 1980s. Uh, and then I was lucky enough to get a position with a big international research program called IGBP, International Geosphere Biosphere Program. Uh, so I sort of got in on the ground level of the big international studies that started looking at the Earth sort of in a broader context than just climate. Climate change was certainly taking off, but we were looking at global change. And that got my career going in terms of looking at the science of how the planet operates, which we now call the Earth system, uh, and so on. So I've been involved with uh, mainly international science, but at a very integrative level, not just studying uh, ecology or physics, 
or chemistry or anything like that. It's more of a systems level approach using complex systems framing, trying to understand how the planet has evolved, how it's changed in the past, how humans, how humans are driving uh, change uh, into the future. So it's really that um, getting that role as executive director of the IGBP, um, which I assumed back in 1998, that really launched me into a whole lot of contacts, colleagues around the world, working basically on Earth system science. Yeah, you've just touched on a number of significant issues for analyzing or thinking about the Anthropocene, which will get there, particularly Earth system science. And I was going to initially say in my introduction here that the Anthropocene, unlike, let's say, climate change, hasn't really entered the public consciousness as much. I mean, certainly academia, it's become certainly a very prominent topic increasingly over the last two decades or so. But even that now, I suppose, one has to rethink. I mean, John Green had a podcast, The Anthropocene Reviewed. He's come up with a book just in the last week. I mean, doing research for this, I saw a Canadian artist by the name of Grimes. She's released a song called Miss Anthropocene last year. And then Yuval Noah Hariri in his book Homo Deus, and that's a popular book, devoted a whole chapter to the Anthropocene. So it is gaining currency, but certainly not as well known. But I think the difficulty with the Anthropocene for people, unlike climate change, it isn't just one topic. It's and it's essentially about geological definition or designation. So maybe if you could speak briefly about when we think of the Anthropocene, really it's about how geologists have divided up the planet's history into these different eras, epochs or epics as they're known. And then of course the Holocene is the one we're technically in, but the Anthropocene is seeking to displace that. So if you can maybe say a few things on these conceptual issues. Yeah, in interestingly, the geological perspective got in rather late on the Anthropocene. It was the, the concept definitely came out of Earth system science, uh, which which is different from the geological societies and stratigraphy. We share a lot of information and so on, but we actually have different origins and different purposes. So, so the 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 notion of the Anthropocene, the concept and the word. Uh, came out of the Earth System Science community in the year 2000. So it was used there to describe a trajectory of the Earth system away from the Holocene. Uh, now, the Holocene actually is a geological term. Mm -hmm. It is, as you say, the um, epoch of Earth history that we are technically still in. But also Earth System scientists use it to define uh, a stable state of the Earth system. In fact, the one in which humans have been able to develop agriculture, villages, cities, complex societies, and civilizations. Uh, and so that we, we sort of reckon that that state of the system has been very important for us in terms of a very accommodating home on the planet. But the Anthropocene was first used uh, to describe a trajectory away from Holocene conditions. That was in the year 2000. It was only in the year 2009 that the stratigraphic community formed the Anthropocene Working Group. That was formed by the Geological Society of London. So they were responding to the challenge that the Earth System scientists were putting out there, that the Earth had left the Holocene. And of course, they put a different lens on it. They put the geological stratigraphic lens on it. And uh, I, I was a, a, an initial member of the Anthropocene Working Group, still am. Uh, and, and so the interesting thing through that decade where we worked on the geological side of things, there was almost a constant interplay and interweaving of the Earth system science and the geological uh, definitions of the of the Anthropocene. They aren't precisely the same, but they share so much that it makes sense that we, we work together on it. Yes, and of course the name Anthropocene, so that notion of an, right. of an epoch or epoch of humans. Now, 
Uh, maybe if you could just mention or explain a bit about what exactly earth system science is or, or what that field is rooted in or its core concept. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's the study of the planet as um, a dynamic system. So, so it takes a, a systems approach and more recently you may say a complex systems approach that studies systems in terms of states, transitions, tipping points, feedbacks, all the things we uh, associate with a system. Um, but uh, the origins of that really came, went back to about the 1920s, contemporary or system science, when Vladimir Vernadsky, uh, a Russian uh, biogeochemist, was starting to publish papers saying, wait a minute, life is not a, a simple passenger on the planet, and we just happen to have a Goldilocks planet that's just right for life. Life actually is an integral part of how the Earth system operates and helps to control the Earth system. And of course, more recently, um, the most uh, popular and well-known characterization of Earth's, the Earth system was James Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis, mm -hmm. which came out in the 1980s, which really, um, even more strongly than Vernadsky said, not only does life influence the planet, it actually controls the planet. Uh, and so that generated a lot of debate and discussion and so on. But it really, in a way, was the uh, the real boost for contemporary Earth system science. That, and at the same time in the 1980s, the American space agency, NASA, was doing a lot of work on Earth system science. Uh, that was the era of the time in which we were starting to get um, systematic um, observations of Earth from space. So we could actually start to track and monitor what the planet was doing. And there was also at that time in 1986, the very famous diagram um, that Francis Bretherton, who was a NASA employee, or were, I should say worked with NASA, I think he was actually with the university. But it was a NASA project that did the first sort of um, systems diagram of the Earth system. So this is the box and arrow diagram of how things are linked, how matter and energy is trans transferred and so on. That diagram basically had two major parts, the geosphere, the non-living part of the Earth. So that was the atmosphere, the ocean, the ice, and so on. Uh, but the biosphere too, um, the biosphere in the ocean, on the land, uh, and so on. But the, the important part that the, um, the NASA, the Bretherton diagram did, was it linked those two quite integral in a very intricate way. So it did actually, in a way, provide a, uh, a more scientific underpinning to what James Lovelock was saying. More recently, we've now uh, added a third sphere, and this goes back to the Anthropocene. We've added an Anthroposphere to the Earth system diagram, saying now we really need to con conceive of our planet as three interacting spheres, the geosphere, the biosphere, and now the Anthroposphere. Uh, and we started looking at all the profound ways in which we're changing both the, bias, the, the geosphere and the biosphere. So basically, Earth system science is the scientific approach to studying the planet as one integrated system at the planetary level. A lot of people make the mistake of putting a plural on that and talk about Earth systems, uh, and more properly, one would say the subsystems, like the atmospheric circulation system, the water cycle, and so on. Those are planetary level systems, but they're subsystems of the planet as a whole. That's basically what we mean when we talk about Earth system science and a little bit of history about it. Um, but as you say, it's absolutely closely connected to the Anthropocene concept as well and to the geological record. In fact, when you look back before we had contemporary instrumentation, uh, we used the geological timescale to learn about what different states of the Earth system, what states the Earth system could be in and transition be between those. There's been a close interaction then between the geological uh, sciences and earth system science.
You mentioned the origin of the term itself, Anthropocene, in 2000. That was Paul Crutzen, the Nobel Prize-winning chemist, whom uh, you have co-authored a number of papers with. So he basically coined the term, although you describe in these excellent papers, uh, Anthropocene, conceptual and historical perspectives. That's one that I would urge everyone to read, as well as the Anthropocene are humans overwhelming the great forces of nature. So those give it a terrific background. But if you could perhaps, or is there even a bumper sticker or t-shirt definition of the Anthropocene, if you were asked something like that? No, there are probably many of them, <laughs> yeah. uh, many of them probably many of them that I'm not, I'm not even aware of. Hmm. Uh, but, but it's basically a trajectory, if, if, if you wanted the one, one sentence definition, which is probably still a bit too technical for many hmm. people, I would describe it as a rapid trajectory or pathway of the Earth system away from Holocene conditions. Uh, so that's what it is. And as the name indicates, it's not a natural variation hmm. in the Earth system. It's driven by humans. So that's the, that's the quick, quick analysis or definition of what the Anthropocene is. Let's try and examine some evidence. What are, as far as you are concerned, the main lines of evidence to argue in favor of the Anthropocene hypothesis or, or thesis? Well, I think what you need to do there is to use a number of indicators of the geosphere and the biosphere uh, and how they change through time. Uh, there's some obvious ones that are associated with climate change, uh, and that is uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So we could look at carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and so on. Um, we could look at stratospheric ozone concentration in Dobson units, for example. It's another part of the geosphere. Uh, we could look at the global average surface temperature of Earth as another indicator that not only climate scientists, but geologists have, have used in the past as well. We could look at conditions in the ocean, like the acidity of the ocean, ocean circulation, things like this. We could look at the ice, the stability of the polar ice sheets, how much have they waxed and waned through the Holocene compared to today and so on. But we could also look at the biosphere. We could look at direct human pressures on the biosphere. We could look at deforestation or, or more broadly land use change rates. Uh, we could look at how the water cycle has been changed through human offtake of water, damming of rivers and so on. Uh, we could look at uh, biodiversity itself. We could look at extinction rates. We could look at changes in, in ecosystem structure uh, that have been driven by humans. So we're looking at all sorts of markers that, or, or indicators that you can measure. Uh, and ideally to, to track the, the Anthropocene, one needs to go back long enough into the Anthropocene to get the, uh, uh, sorry, the, the Holocene, to get the Holocene baseline. And then you can start to track how these indicators are changing. Uh, you can look at observations in the past and the paleo record to see the natural variability, because there is an envelope of natural variability. You can see how the Earth is, how those Earth indicators have changed through the Holocene. And then you can see the, um, the, the more recent changes and how they compare. And it's evidence like that. So it was really an evidence-based approach that was the original definition of the Anthropocene. Paul didn't come up with this sort of uh, thinking in his room. He was responding to paleo scientists who were, uh, and other scientists in this IGBP program who were talking about the Holocene and referencing everything against the Holocene. So, so what Paul was seeing was all the indicators that I've just been talked about. So the, the atmospheric chemists, the terrestrial ecologists, the marine biologists, all these people were talking about how much the earth was changing, but the, but the paleo people were still referring to the Holocene. Obviously, this was cognitive dissonance at a huge <laughs> scale. And so that's really what Paul was doing. He was put, putting two and two together, saying, look, the observations, the indicators 
are obviously telling us we're not in the Holocene anymore. So that's really the the, the basis for for his proposal. It wasn't. I don't think it was a, a long term thought out thing. I think it was just an analysis on the spot of what he was hearing at this meeting, and then saying, you know, we've got a really big gap between what the Holocene people think is still the Holocene and what all these contemporary scientists are saying, this is what's actually happening to the Earth. And I think to be clear to those who might not even know the Holocene term, I I think it's incredibly crucial because it's about the last 12,000 years roughly, or or let's say 10 to 12,000 years of history. And during this time, the agricultural revolution, as it's called, emerged, which is the foundation for all of modern civilization. And the other important aspect about it is that I've seen some of the measurements, the paleoclimate measurements in previous eras when humans were around. It's only about the last 10 percent or so of our history as a species and it's a very climatically stable epic or epoch and and that enabled agriculture to take off so one of the more dubious and and they're just about all dubious climate change denialist arguments are the climate's always changed and of course well that's climate scientists reveal that the point is we're way beyond this natural variability and as far and correct me if i'm wrong dr stefan but we haven't had this much carbon dioxide of the atmosphere for as many as two and a half million years. Of course, when humans were not around at all, we were, we were just a glimmer in, in an earlier hominid species there. So that's quite important for people to realize and this big jump. And so we've not had organized civilization uh, on this planet at these rates of change on multiple levels. But there's some contention as to when the Anthropocene is alleged to have started. Some of the alternatives are the megafauna extinction at Pleistocene, the deforestation in 8,000 years ago that you write about, and also the start of rice irrigation 5,000 years ago. So why are those not ideal starting dates? And then when would you put the starting date for, or the rough starting date for the Anthropocene? I I think to to define the start of the Anthropocene, you have to pretty clearly show that you are leaving or have left the Holocene. So So things have to move outside the Holocene envelope of variability. So early agriculture, 7,000 or so years ago, the hypothesis there was that there was an increase in carbon dioxide from about 260 to 280. It was a very slow increase. But in fact, when you look at the isotopic record of that CO2, it did not come from the land. So it didn't come from agriculture. Uh, it came from the ocean because that has a different isotopic signature for the carbon for the carbon dioxide. So it's pretty clear that's what happened. And that matches the time at which uh, the sea level finally stabilized uh, at the end of the uh, last ice age. As sea level was rising as the earth warmed, uh, it takes a long time to do that. So it actually lagged the, the start of the Holocene when temp- when atmospheric temperature stabilized by several thousand years. So so the um, sea level finally stabilized at 120 meters higher than the depth of the last ice age. But that was 7,000 years ago. That led to a change of ocean circulation, which outgassed some CO2 and led to a slow rise in CO2. That was coincident with... Um, uh, beginning of agriculture, of course, at a large scale. So that was a conflation of those um, two arguments. Uh, but the isotopic signature is pretty clear that that CO2 came from the ocean. Uh, so there are early um, Anthropocene hypotheses uh, due to human impacts uh, that were still within the bounds of the Holocene when you actually look at the indicators, and were also diachronous. So they were they were happening at different times in different types of parts of the planet. The other point is the stratigraphers say that by definition humans and our impacts are part of the Holocene. Uh, and they've already taken that into account. So the question is, when do human impacts become big enough and also synchronous 
which is what they are always looking for. They want to change, not in some part of the earth, some big agricultural zone, be it Europe or North America or whatever. They want to see changing in, changes in the planet as a whole, uh, which is the same thing as, as um, Earth system science scientists want to see. So by those criteria, the early um, human activities and impacts are considered to be part of the Holocene. They're interesting. They're important. A lot of archaeologists and anthropologists work on them. Um, but just because humans are doing something to the planet doesn't mean that you're in the Anthropocene yet. Mm. It, it has to do with globally synchronous, widespread changes that are clearly outside of Holocene norms. That's basically, in, in layman's language, what we're looking for when we're looking for the start of the Anthropocene. And in the paper I mentioned from 2011, which is quite remarkable, that's already a decade ago, but still well worth reading because of its contextualization and laying out very clearly of the different facets of the Anthropocene, you and your co-authors note that 1800 CE or AD, as it's sometimes also known, would be a good starting date, roughly. I mean, I know you speak about or refer to three stages. We'll get to the, the major one, the more recent. You, you still stand by that as a viable no, starting I, date? I think that's been superseded because uh, obviously we're testing those dates and getting evidence. And so the, the usual way scientists, being conservative people, approach this is that they want something that's absolutely clear, that's absolutely out of the Holocene, that's synchronous pretty much globally and and uh, is supported by a wealth of information. The, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, when we uh, considered that, we really hadn't yet looked at the, um, I think that paper was published in 2007, and we hadn't really examined carefully a lot of the both human indicators and Earth system indicators back from, from 1750, which when we first looked at them, uh, to pick up the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. You start to see changes, indeed, around 1780s, 1790s, where, when in England the Industrial Revolution took off. But it, was, it would really be hard to make an argument that you've breached the Holocene envelope of variability yet. But what is truly remarkable is the mid-20th century, when mm -hmm. all the indicators absolutely take off. Their rates change, become much more dramatic, uh, they become much more uh, synchronous around the planet and so on. So it was clear when we started looking at the data in more detail that the 1950s is a more conservative but better uh, start date for the Anthropocene. Also, by that time, by 2009, the stratigraphers were getting into it. So we, we had a lot of discussions amongst the stratigraphers, Earth system scientists, uh, that um, it really would be good to have a common start date for the Anthropocene. Uh, and indeed, both the evidence from the Earth system point of view and from the stratigraphic point of view were pointing for much clearer and much more dramatic changes in the mid-20th century, which made it a much more attractive start date for the Anthropocene than the earlier one. And that period, which we're largely still in, is known as the Great Acceleration, correct, starting around 1945? 1945, 1950, mid-20th century. Uh, so the term actually comes from historian uh, John McNeil, who had written a book in the year 2000, Something New Under the Sun. Uh, and he was um, taking a new take on history that put much more emphasis on the mid-20th century than historians who put much more emphasis on uh, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, um, that sort of thing. And his argument was not so much the technologies, but the 
sort of software rather than the hardware, the institutions that came out of the Second World War. And his argument was still in the earlier 20th century, a lot of feudal type institutions existed. And it took two world wars and a Great Depression in between to finally knock them out. So you came out of the Second World War with the International Monetary Fund, the United Nations, all sorts of new institutions, which allowed a massive expansion of the economic system uh, coming out of the Second World War. And this was really the key to the, the Great Acceleration um, as he termed it. That term came out of a, a Dalem conference workshop uh, that I think we held in 2007, I think it was, 2006 or 2007. And it was in a working group of about eight or nine people that John was in. I was chairing it. Paul Crutzen was in there. Uh, and so we had some a couple of the social scientists and some natural scientists. And we were just looking at the data and brainstorming as one does in those workshops. And it was really, and we were just, again, remarking about how dramatic the changes were uh, after the Second World War and looking at the graphs that were all sweeping up upwards. And it was John who said, well, that that could be called the Great Acceleration, sort of in homage to Carl Polyani, a a historian who had talked about the Great Transformation Mm. earlier. So that was the origin of that term. It it comes out of the history discipline and uh, in particular from John McNeil. It is quite staggering when you look at those graphs included in the papers I mentioned, just how it goes from almost nothing in some cases to just pretty much off the charts. And I mean, just some numbers, the population doubles from about 3 billion to 6 billion by 2000. Of course, it's well on the way to 8 billion now. You have consumption increasing 50-fold, energy usage 40-fold, just as some markers of what transpired. Now, another important concept or notion is that of Johan Rockström. I believe he's a Swedish researcher, the planetary boundaries. Maybe if you could say a little bit about what those are. We've breached yeah. some of them. Even. Yeah. Okay. So, so Yo- Johan came came in and said, all right, we're, the Anthropocene is a, a trajectory. It's not a new state yet. It's moving away rapidly from the Holocene. Uh, and he gathered together a group of about 25 or 30 scientists. This was, again, back in 2007 in a uh, sort of a summer retreat run by a Swedish uh, industrialist every year up in the, the beautiful uh, lake country north of Stockholm. So he invited about 25 of us along to uh, really develop this concept that he'd come up with called planetary boundaries. And the idea is, can we define a certain small set of indicators that define the state of the Earth system, and we can define what those indicators were like in the Holocene. Uh, we can make it some estimate of how much we can push them before we breach Holocene conditions. And so that was the whole idea to maintain a stable Earth system that's in a Holocene-like state. So we brainstormed for several days up in this nice uh, atmosphere in summertime, sort of light most of the de- most of the, <laughs> the 24 hours and a lot of good snaps to drink and all sorts of other things. Anyway, so we, we were brainstorming this and we came up with nine different indicators that we thought would be sufficient to describe the state of the Earth system. And then we went on to describing um, control variables. In other words, you have to have some indicator for each of those those boundaries. Uh, and where we had gotten with them. So there were two obvious big ones, which we have later called core boundaries, really important ones. One was climate change, and the other is called biosphere integrity. So that captures the two great spheres of the Earth system, the biosphere and the geosphere. But then we looked at other indicators, uh, things like the atmospheric ozone. Uh, We looked at aerosols in the atmosphere. We put a lot of things on land systems, like land use change, or by how much we transformed land. We looked at um, phosphorus and nitrogen and other elements, uh, chemical elements that are important for the functioning of the biosphere, but that humans are changing. We looked at human uh, change of the freshwater cycle and so on. So we came up with nine of those. 
And our initial assessment back then that we finally published in the year 2009 in Nature uh, was that four of them uh, were being transgressed already. We updated the, the framework in 2015 and we're in the process of updating it another uh, another time now in 2021. But the upshot now is that we think that six of the nine boundaries have probably been transgressed. So basically, when we look at that 10-year time frame from 2009 when we first published it, up till now, a bit more than 10 years. Uh, things are basically moving in the wrong direction for virtually all of the planetary boundaries. In other words, human pressure on the Earth system is actually increasing, not stabilizing even or, or going back down. Yeah, that's rather terrifying. And what are some of these boundaries, perhaps specifically the transgressed ones? Okay, one of them is climate change, mm -hmm. which is, uh, we think that to have a Holocene-like planet, you cannot go above 350 parts per million CO2, which is an indicator for changes in Earth's energy balance. Well, as we all know, we're way above that. Now, we've breached 400. We're somewhere around 412 to 415 parts per million, I think, the last time I checked. So the two big ones we're, we're running way over. Uh, the other one, of course, is biosphere integrity. And and there we're, we've got sort of a, a, a two-barreled indicator. One is on biodiversity. The other is on the functioning of the biosphere. Biodiversity, we think that we should keep extinction rates down to, at a maximum, 10 times background rates, which are very low. Uh, we're now sitting at somewhere 15 to 20 to 100 times above background rates, depending on how you measure it. Uh, so we're way above what we should be doing with biosphere integrity. We're, we're going to update the other one, the functioning part of that, but probably, and that would be human co-option of the pro productivity of the biosphere, or what's sometimes called net uh, primary productivity. We should keep that down around the 10%. Well, we're somewhere between 25 and 40% now of human co-option of the productivity of the entire biosphere, which leaves less and less left for all the other animals and plants on the biosphere to live off of. So that's a, a very rough way, but uh, I think a good summary of where we are on those two big ones. Phosphorus and nitrogen element cycles are one that we're, again, well beyond the boundaries uh, in both of those. We're pouring far too much reactive nitrogen. We're seeing that in terms of of um, uh, pollution of freshwaters, eutrophication of coastal zones. At some, in some places, we're seeing soil toxicity uh, due to too much uh, nitrate in it, and so on. So those those are, are are some of the boundaries that have already been transgressed in our update. Uh, freshwater use, we'll, we're going beyond that now. Aerosol loading is probably too high. These are things that will come out in the next paper that we're working on. Novel entities is a, another one. That's the one I haven't mentioned. But that's entirely new stuff that we throw into the Earth system, stuff that hasn't existed. You can think of it as chemicals, radioactive materials, plastics, uh, and a whole host of new things that basically come out of our waste. And the Earth doesn't know how to metabolize them because they are new. Now, we're really struggling to say, what should the boundary be for that? Because, you know, uh, chemists are working on, on measures of toxicity and mm -hmm. so on. Well, a, a philosophical approach, and which I think is actually quite good, is that the um, boundary should be set at zero. In other words, we should not put anything new into the Earth system. And, of course, that means you should build a completely circular economy, which whatever we synthesize, we actually capture all of the effluent, all of the byproducts, and either make them inert, store them, or recycle them. Recycle them. So that's under discussion now in terms of our, our next update paper. But when you look at that, of the nine planetary boundaries, I think six or so will be transgressed coming out of this next paper. So that's telling us we're, we're going in the wrong direction, probably at an increasing speed. 
not very comforting for those who want to put a positive cast on matters. Now, another rather significant notion or again framework for stratigraphy is that of the golden spike because you want to try to have some kind of marker. You were talking about the synchronous one to differentiate geological ages. So maybe if you could speak to that and, and what potential golden spikes there are to indicate the onset of the Anthropocene. Yeah, there, there are a lot of them. I'm, this isn't really in my area of expertise, so a stratigrapher could tell you a lot more. But I know, for example, the we were talking a bit about nitrates, and the, the fixation of nitrogen for fertilizers just absolutely exploded after the Second World War. They're applied on all continents. Uh, so we're seeing them appear in, say, freshwater lakes in China, in South America, in Europe, in North America. Uh, and they start appearing, these nitrates, in the sediments of lakes again, around 1950, everywhere. So they are synchronous around the planet. There's a very sharp boundary in these lake cores between below about 1950, when you have very few nitrates, and above where you have a lot. So that fits the stratigraphers' definition of what they want. Another obvious one is radioactive uh, material from the bomb tests, uh, and that peaked in around 1953. So again, that sits in the mid-20th century, uh, because it was mixed very quickly around the atmosphere and rained out out of the atmosphere everywhere, it's appearing in cores everywhere, and that can be dated very precisely to 1953. So the stratigraphers will be looking at things like that, where they can get as precise as possible a date for the start. And so the radioactive material from bomb tests is actually a pretty good one. Uh, I guess philosophically it may upset some people that that may be the marker for the Anthropocene, because it's a pretty negative one in terms mm. of human activity. But the stratigraphers don't worry about that. All they want is something that is as clear as possible, is synchronous around the planet, uh, and matches a, a, about a mid-20th century start date, which is the, what the Anthropocene uh, group in a, a binding vote has now recommended be the, the starting date for the Anthropocene. I read an article a few years ago about one of the potential golden spikes for the Anthropocene could be chicken bones, because yes. there are just so many billions of chickens on the planet at any one time, and, and the consumption levels there are also global in extent. So do, what do you think about that as a potential candidate? Well, that's an interesting one, because um, again, that took off after the Second World War, as diets changed. Mm pretty much everywhere. And with globalization, it moved around the planet. But the, the pre-anthropocene chook, if I can call, call them that, weighed about 800 grams. Uh, the chickens we eat now uh, weigh close to five kilograms. So you're talking about a factor of six or seven bigger. And this is manifested in the bone structure. So we see much heavier set bones uh, coming, where well, it has to be to support a chicken that big. So, so when you start looking at chicken bones in in the stratigraphic record, you see a fairly rapid and sharp change in the size and density of the bones after the uh, after the mid twentieth century. So that could also be used as a marker, although it isn't quite as sharp as say the nitrate one uh, or the radioactive one. You could also look at plastics accumulating, uh, particularly in the ocean basins and the coastal oceans. Um, again, you see very few of those uh, before the mid-20th century, and then they start to accumulate in the cores, particularly in the coastal zones. So there, there are a lot of different possible indicators that we could use. 
All right. Now, I'm sure you're well aware that the term itself, although there's so much evidence that we've entered this new geological age driven by human beings, the term itself is quite contentious in some circles. So one of the, the challenges to it comes from Jason Moore. I'm sure you're familiar with his work, who prefers the term capitalocene. And there's at least two broad justifications for the use of this term. So one would be that it's just true that when we talk about the rise of the Industrial Revolution, ramping up the use of fossil fuels, that's really coterminous with the emergence of capitalism, which is now spread all over the world. And then the other one is that there is no undifferentiated homogeneous humanity, a so-called anthropos, because of course, as you've pointed out repeatedly in a few interviews and articles, I read that OECD countries, so those are roughly the 21 or so richest countries, they account for only 18% of the population and yet are responsible for about 74% or three quarters of consumption. Now, that has changed a bit in the rise of China and India over the last, let's say, two or three decades. Uh, in China's case, a bit longer. But we're a world riven with vast inequalities. I mean, it's still largely true that the richest countries have a consumption profile well in excess of poorer countries. So what do you make of this idea that it shouldn't be the Anthropocene, it should be the Capitalocene, or maybe another term even? Yeah, another term would be the Manthropocene because <laughs> of the domination of males in most cultures around the planet. Yeah. Uh, in fact, some people argue that's even better than capitalocene uh, <laughs> because even in socialist countries, men tend to dominate. So, And it's so quite nice because you just have to add one letter to it, the Manthropocene. <laughs> so, so, but there are others out there too that have um, the homogenous scene or things like that because we're mixing things around the planet. Um, all those are very interesting discourses, but um, I think the Anthropocene is, is a far better term because when you look at the bigger picture, really what came out of the use of that term at the beginning was were two things. One is we had left the Holocene. The state of the Earth system was changing. The trajectory was an enormously rapid trajectory away from the Holocene. But the second thing is, is that natural variability as some earlier climate skeptics tried to claim, or is it human? So the point is just at that point, we wanted to say this is not a natural swing in the Earth system. This is driven by humans, which is the Anthropos as humans. And then, of course, you can unpick that into the OECD countries, males, whatever you, you have. And I think that's really important. And it's a rich discourse uh, that I enjoy reading about and contributing to. Uh, but I think the Anthropocene is the good umbrella term that says this is not natural what's happening. Uh, unless, of course, you, of course, say we're, we're natural ourselves. Uh, but it's driven by human activity. Uh, and then you can start picking apart the economic system, capitalist scene, gender issues, what have you. And that's a rich discourse, which I think is very important. So, uh, but I think an Anthropocene is the, is the good overarching term for all of those other interpretations of it. Now, having noted that, as well as your very alarming point about how we're breaching more and more of these planetary boundaries, that we're going in the wrong direction at all levels. So, and if you consider the fact that we're living through the sixth great extinction, and uniquely humans are the only species to have ever driven an extinction event in our planet's history, mass deforestation, rising sea levels, microplastics, pollution, we're even... Uh, there's even so much space junk now, which a lot of people don't probably give enough attention to. And one, one can go on and on in this vein. And, and there's that famous line, I don't know who it's attributed to, which is, I have seen the enemy and it is us. 
And a more potent one would be Robert J. Oppenheimer, who, when he looked out at the first test of a nuclear bomb at Los Alamos, which could be that golden spike, he's alleged to have said, I have become deaf, the destroyer of worlds. And so human beings have been destroying the world for a long time, even just, let's say, the megafauna extinction. So my question is a difficult one, and I'm sure you probably won't answer in the affirmative for your own career's sake, but wouldn't the planet be better without us? Aren't we just, as Agent Smith said in the film that was shot in where you are in Australia, we're a cancer of this planet. Shouldn't it be good if we're just gone? Well, there certainly is an argument to be made for that, and some people do make that. On the other hand, you can look at some cultures which haven't. Uh, they've been swamped by the, a modern culture, but some cultures, and here I think of indigenous Australians who have been on this continent for 65 million years. And the interesting thing is they were probably implicated in some early extinctions of giant wombats and kangaroos. Uh, and the hypothesis there is that that happened during the descent into the last ice age. And there is evidence that they coexisted for tens of thousands of years with these large creatures. But that, and the earth was cooling, but it was also doing it in a fairly erratic fashion, that they may have underestimated how rapidly some of these cold dry spells were transpiring. And they, uh, they killed too many of these other creatures, which of course they did for food. And, and so that's, that's the most likely hypothesis because uh, it wasn't a blitzkrieg, as some people earlier said. They didn't come in from Asia and immediately knock off all these big creatures. They coexisted for a long time. So um, the argument there is that, and when Europeans invaded Australia about 200, 250 years ago, uh, they found almost a paradise in terms of how the, how the continent was managed. And I'm sure that wouldn't be unique to Australia. Indigenous cultures elsewhere certainly could have had very sustainable lifestyles. So the, re the real question in my mind is, were those truly sustainable? Well, 65,000 years is a long time. And, 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 and some of the work that, that um, one of my PhD students did was on uh, looking at the population curves for Indigenous Australians during those 65,000 years. And it was quite interesting that populations were very low during the Ice Age, you know, maybe uh, a couple hundred thousand. But they, after, after, when the Holocene came along, they grew to three million and the whole continent was populated everywhere, but still sustainable. The only extinctions occurred back when there were only a few hundred thousand uh, Indigenous Australians, when they became much more populous. There were no extinctions and there was no evidence of any great biosphere degradation. So I think studying indigenous cultures around the world may put more nuances into this idea that, well, we humans are just a cancer on the planet. Well, we certainly are today, and that's probably a pretty accurate description of what we are. And the question is, and there's no easy answer to this, is this something that's absolutely innate in humans, or is it something that's developed more recently uh, and is not characteristic of indigenous people on, on most of the continents? Uh, and there's no easy answer, and there's still debate about about that sort of question. And then, you know, the question of then what can be done? I mean, when I was first exploring this topic, I was privileged to be studying in France at the time on an exchange program and Bruno Latour, who wrote The Politics of Nature, his course was just phenomenal. And the Anthropocene was a big part of that. So I started to do a lot of research and I was going to write my master's on thinking about it in, in terms of international relations, which is what I have my master's in. And we have to develop new economic systems, specifically new systems in 
international institutions because, you know, the environment doesn't care about nation states. So the nation state now seems increasingly anachronistic. Uh, we really need to transcend that. It ended up being too, I think, ambitious a project. I focused more narrowly on, on the Paris Accords. But um, yeah. so what are some potential solutions? I mean, this is this is a difficult question even to pose. You discuss mitigation in papers I've read, but I mean, what can we really do? This is just such a vast problem of, glo- of uh, truly yeah. global extent. Yeah, look, it's a, yeah, it's, 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 it's a huge, complex, vexed problem. Uh, and, you know, I've got a lot of time for people like Bruno Latour and others from the humanities who've entered the Anthropocene discourse. Uh, Clive Hamilton's another one from down here in Australia who's written some really interesting things about it. Hmm. Uh, but I think to, to, to simplify it, there are basically two different philosophical approaches that are often used in the climate change discourse, but they actually apply more broadly to the Anthropocene and so on. And that is, well, we just need different technologies and and we can solve this. You go to renewable energies, electric vehicles, this and that. And we keep sort of going along the way we were being wealthy people and consuming Mm -hmm. a lot. That technology will pull us out. And then there's the much deeper transformation that people are calling for, that it comes down to core values uh, and how we live, how we relate to each other but also how we relate to the rest of life on the planet. And there's a lot of good work on that, say, at the Stockholm Resilience Center on reconnecting to the biosphere and things like this, on social ecological systems that have to become compatible and so on. And I sort of work across both of those ideas and in both of those spheres. I think ultimately, though, if you had to pin me down and say what really is required, I would go with the deeper change, um, the change in values, the change in how we relate to the rest of life on the planet and so on. And and I think there needs to be much more discussion about that. That's why I really do enjoy and encourage a lot of uh, people from the humanities, uh, historians, philosophers, and so on, to get involved in this, um, and indigenous people as well, because they have insights that I think are really, really important and that uh, go far beyond, well, let's just change our energy system and, and we'll solve this. Yeah, I think it is deeper than that. Mm, I definitely agree. And then in 2018, in the International Commission on Stratigraphy, I believe they met here in South Africa, and they decided not to rename the Holocene, the Anthropocene, instead dividing the epoch into three, the latest one being the Mega Lion, which I think stretches back to 4,250 years ago. But so with everything you've laid out so lucidly today, and it seems incontrovertible just looking around at the impact of humans, why did they decide not to change the epoch officially? Well, because um, the the Holocene itself has well-defined characteristics. And the Megalayan, the North Grippian, uh, and the Greenlandian, which are the stages of the of the Holocene, don't change the overall epoch. They're, su- they're just a subdivision of the Holocene. Mm-hmm. And that's happened in, in other time intervals in, in Earth history. So it's just a way of saying that when we dig into the Holocene, within that very stable state of the Earth system, you can see some internal shifts in the system. Uh, and that's that's what they're doing. Uh, but those the changes, say, between the Megalan and the North Grippian are trivial compared to the change between the Holocene and the Anthropocene. So it's a, it's going down in, in detail. Uh, and you can see that in other epochs as, as well. They've been been divided up into stages as well. Uh, so that really didn't that, that really didn't have any bearing on the Anthropocene discourse. That was just a fine tuning the Holocene, if I can put it that way. 
So it doesn't really matter as much because, again, the no. evidence doesn't just disappear because of designations or nomenclature. All right. So then if people wanted to learn more about the Anthropocene, I mean, your work, and I'll certainly link to some of those papers in the show notes and books you've written, where could people find out about this vitally important topic? Yeah, well, I, th I think you could go to um, really a wealth of papers that, is, that have come out of the Anthropocene Working Group, uh, and that's been led by Jan Zalasevich, and then more recently, Colin Waters. Uh, and a lot of those have large author lists because they're done by groups. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's a really, I think, a very comprehensive set of papers that are not just focused on the stratigraphy and not just focused on our system science. They're talking about interpretations of the Anthropocene uh, and so on. So, so it's, it's much broader. It brings in humanities scholars, historians, legal experts, and so on. Uh, so that's a good place to start. I actually really think a lot of people in, in the social sciences and humanities have written some really good work on that. You mentioned Bruno, Bruno Latour. He's one of them. Claude Hamilton is another. Uh, there's been some interesting work by political scientists, by... Um, Andreas Malm and Alf Hornboy to begin with. They're in Lund in Sweden, uh, and they were the, the ones who really looked at the internal inequalities uh, in human societies, and that really it was the wealthy 18% who were you know, in the driver's seat of the Anthropocene. So I, I think that there's just such a wealth of literature out there now that if one uh, Googled Anthropocene, you'd probably get hundreds of thousands of, of mm. papers. Uh, but basically, I think if you're interested in it, I, I would actually think the, the, the more social sciences and humanities papers are in a way more interesting because they're unpicking in, in great detail what it, what it is about us humans that have driven this new epoch in Earth history. Mm. If you're a natural scientist, well, you could certainly go into a lot of the papers that just go into the evidence for it. Geologists, well, that's pretty, pretty uh, challenging for many geologists because they're, they're now having to look at very different stratigraphic markers hmm. um chicken bones for example <laughs> radioactive nuclides is another one so so, so um, it depends on what your interest is but i would say a good starting point is the anthropocene working group and their their list of publications because that goes far beyond geology uh, a really recent paper actually explored uh the different interpretations and terms used for the anthropocene like the capitalocene and the manthropocene mm -hmm. and things like that and how they relate to each other or, or don't relate to each other whatever the case may be thank you for those pointers and then perhaps just lastly if people wanted to learn more about dr will stefan where could we find out about your work maybe you have a social media presence I don't have a very big one. That's mainly because I was uh, getting harassed in Australia when I started working on climate change, including a death threat or two. Uh, so I was told by my, universe, my university's uh, security people to stay off the social media. Uh, so I largely do that. However, uh, just as uh, uh, looking ahead a bit, I'm beginning to work uh, on a book which I hope will be really interesting. It's going to be called A Journey into the Anthropocene, and it'll be my story of working with Paul and working with a lot of other people, a bit about myself, but more about the people and the players in the game, uh, and, uh, and, and a lot of my personal experiences of working around the planet on every continent on various aspects of the Anthropocene with a lot of very well-known scientists and other scholars. So mm. it's going to be hopefully a very readable book, uh, and it'll be a little bit about myself, but more about the scientific community and how we made this journey from uh, a lot of disciplinary work into this holistic uh, view of the Anthropocene. So hopefully that's something to look forward to. I don't know when it'll be published because I'm just starting <laughs> on it. It'll eventually probably take more time than I think, but anyway. 
hopefully that'll be out in a few years. All right. Yeah, that was going to be my question about when it might be available. But all right, it's definitely going to be something to look forward to because you were and still are a major researcher in this field, a pioneer. And so it's been a great honor to talk to someone. I read your papers, as I said, years ago when I was researching Anthropocene with some degree of avidity. And they're worth rereading still. And thank you for everything you've done and continue to do. And it's been a great pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Will Stephan. Thanks, Ryan. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. Goodbye. Bye-bye.